And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is Ken, Ken Hudnall Show. <coughs> Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today's February the 8th, 39th day of the year. 326 days remain to the year's over with. And holidays and observances. Opera Day. Well, to me, if there's no banjos, it's not opera. I grew up in Tennessee. National Molasses Bar Day. Laugh and Get Rich Day. National Kite Flying Day. Fat Thursday. National Apprenticeship Week. International Networking Week. Congenital Heart Defect Awareness Week. Feeding Tube Awareness Week. National School Counseling Week. Go counsel your school today. Pride and Food Service Week, Boy Scouts Anniversary Week, Burn Awareness Week, Children's Mental Health Week, Birthdays, James Dean, Mary Steenburgen, and Big Show, a well-known wrestler, National Black History Month, Canned Food Month, National Snack Food Month, National Children's Dental Health Month, Harley Quinn Month, National Embroidery Month, National Grapefruit Month, National Women's Inventors Month, Great American Pie Month, International Vegan Cuisine Month, American Heart Month, National Cherry Month, National Bake for Family Fun Month, National Bird Feeding Month, National Hot Breakfast Month, National Library Lovers Month, Low Vision Awareness Month, National Fasting February, North American Inclusion Month. Well... Excuse me. 421 A.D., Constantius III becomes co-emperor of the Western Roman Empire. He wasn't the emperor, he was the co-emperor. 1238, the Mongols burned the Russian city of Vladimir. 1250, the Seventh Crusade. Crusaders engage Ayyubid forces in the Battle of Al-Mansura. 1347, the Byzantine Civil War of 1341, ends with a power-sharing agreement between John VI Cantacuzinos and John P. Paleogos. Uh, 1587, Mary, the Queen of Scots, is executed on suspicion of having been involved in the Babington plot to murder her cousin, Queen Elizabeth. Executed on suspicion. That's like today, accusation equals guilt. 1601, Robert Devereux, 2nd Earl of Essex, unsuccessfully rebels against Queen Elizabeth I. 1693, the College of William & Mary, Williamsburg, Virginia, the second oldest institution of higher education in the 13 colonies, is granted a charter by King William III and Queen Mary II. Well, 1807, Napoleon defeats the coalition forces of Russian General Benningson and Prussian General L. Stolk. At the Battle of Eylau, 1817, an army led by Grand Marshal Las Harris crosses the Andes to join San Martin in the liberation of Chile from Spain. 1837, Richard Johnson becomes the first and only Vice President of the United States chosen by the Senate. <coughs> Excuse me. 
1865, Delaware refuses to ratify the 13th Amendment of the Constitution, delaying the criminalization of slavery until the amendment's national adoption, December 6, 1865. The amendment was ultimately ratified by Delaware on February 12, 1901. That's the 92nd anniversary of Abraham Lincoln's birth. 1897, Sam. Alfred Fleming first proposes the adoption of Universal Standard Time at a meeting of the Royal Canadian Institute. 1879, England's cricket team, led by Lord Harris, is attacked in a riot during a match in Sydney. 1885, first Japanese immigrants arrive in Hawaii. 1887, the Dawes Act is enacted, authorizing the president to divide North American tribal land into individual allotments. 1904, Japanese forces launch a surprise attack against Russian-controlled Port Arthur, marking the start of the Russo-Japanese War. Also in 1904, the Dutch colonial army's Marchusi Regiment, led by General G.C.E. Van Dalen, launch a military campaign in the Dutch East Indies' northern Sumatra region, leading to the death of thousands of civilians. 1910, the Boy Scouts of America is incorporated by William Boyce. 1915, D.W. Griffin's controversial landmark film, The Birth of a Nation, premieres in Los, uh, Los Angeles. 1924, first state execution in the U.S. by gas chamber takes place in Nevada. 1937, Spanish Civil War. Republican forces established an interprovincial council of Santander, uh, Palencia, and Burgos in Cantabria. 1942, World War II, Japan invades Singapore. 1945, World War II, British and Canadian forces commence Operation Veritable to occupy land between the Moss and the Rhine rivers. 1945, World War II, Mikhail Devyatayev escapes with nine other Soviet POWs from Nazi concentration camp in Pinamunda. Used them. 1946, the People's Republic of Korea is dissolved in the North and replaced by the Communist-Controlled Provisional People's Committee of North Korea. 1950, the Stasi, the secret police of East Germany, is established on this date. 1960, Queen Elizabeth II issues an order in council proclaiming the House of Windsor and declaring that her descendants will take the name Mountbatten-Windsor. 1960, Hollywood Walk of Fame is founded. 1962, nine protesters are killed at Charonne Station in Paris by French police under the command of ex-Vichy official and Parisian perfect of police Maurice Papon. 1963, the regime of Prime Minister of Iraq, Abd al-Karim Qasim, is overthrown by the Ba'ath Party. 1965, Eastern Airlines Flight 663 crashes into the Atlantic Ocean and explodes, kills all 84 people on board. 1968, American Civil Rights Movement, an attack on black students from South Carolina State University who are protesting racial segregation, leaves three dead and 28 injured in Orangeburg, South Carolina. The um, It's called the Orangeburg Massacre. Uh, it took place on the campus of South Carolina State College in Orangeburg, South Carolina. Nine highway patrolmen and one city police officer opened fire on a crowd of African-American students. Killed three and injured 28, as I said. 
shootings were the culmination of a series of protests against racial segregation in a local bowling alley, marking the first instance of police killing student protesters at an American university. Now, two days before that shooting, student activists had been arrested for a sit-in at the segregated All-Star Bowling Lane. When a crowd of several hundred Claflin and South Carolina State College students gathered outside the bowling alley to protest the arrest, police dispersed the crowd with billy clubs. Students requested permission to hold a march downtown and submitted a list of demands to city officials. The request for the march was denied, but city officials agreed to review the demands. As uh, tensions in Orangeburg mounted over the next few days, Governor Robert McNair ordered hundreds of National Guardsmen and Highway Patrol officers to the city to keep the peace. On the night of February 8th, students at both colleges and Wilkinson High School started a bonfire at the front of State College campus. When the police moved to put out the fire, students threw debris at him, including a piece of wood banister that injured an officer. Several minutes later, at least nine patrolmen and one city police officer opened fire on the crowd. Dozens of fleeing students were wounded. Sam Hammond, Henry Smith, and Delano Middleton were pronounced dead at the Orangeburg Regional Hospital. Uh, in the aftermath of the killings, the bowling alley and most remaining white-only establishments in Orangeburg were desegregated. Federal prosecutors charged nine patrolmen with de- deprivation of rights under color of law by firing on the demonstrators, but they were acquitted at a subsequent trial. The state of South Carolina charged one of the protesters, Cleveland Sellers, with riot charges, was convicted on charges relating to events two days before the massacre. He got a pardon in 1993. 2001, Jim Hodges became the first governor to make a formal apology for the massacre. There's a lot of, uh, well, shall we say, less than uh, proper conduct that took place. 1971, the NASDAQ stock market index opens for the first time. 1971, also saw the South Vietnamese ground troops launched an incursion into Laos to try to cut off the Ho Chi Minh Trail and Stopped communist infiltration into the country. <laughs> Didn't work. 1974, the crew of Skylab 4, the last mission to visit the American space station Skylab, returned to Earth after 84 days in space. 1983, a dust storm hits Melbourne, resulting in the worst drought on record and severe weather conditions in the city. 1983, Irish racehorse Sheargar stolen and allegedly killed a gunman in a ransom attempt. 1986, 23 people were killed when a via rail passenger train collides with a Canadian national freight train near the town of Hinton, Alberta, making it one of the worst rail accidents in Canada. 1989, Independent Air Flight 1851 strikes Pico Alto Mountain along approach to Santa Maria Airport, killed all 144 passengers on board. 1993, Iran Air Tours Tupelo of TU-154 and an Iranian Air Force Sukhoi Su-24 collide uh, midair near Quads, uh, Iran, killed all 133 people on board both aircraft. 2010, over two miles of road are buried after a storm in the Hindu Kush Mountains of Afghanistan triggered a uh, series of avalanches, killed at least 172 people and trapped over 2,000 others. 2013, a blizzard uh, kills at least 18 and leaves hundreds of thousands of people without electricity in the northeast U.S. and parts of Canada. And in 2014, hotel fire in Medina, Saudi Arabia, kills 15 Egyptian pilgrims with 130 others injured.
Well, before I start my main segment, a couple of things I want to bring to your attention. You know, normally I spend the, the mornings getting ready for the show, but today was a little different. At uh, 6.44 this morning, I got an email from somebody named Amanda Hom. Says your payment's been successfully processed and we've credited the amount to your account. We're dedicated to delivering top notch service and sincerely appreciate your business. Which was news to me because I hadn't authorized any payment to anybody. Turned out it was from Norton LifeLock, allegedly. And I was charged $799.99 for a one year subscription to Norton LifeLock. Now, I thought it was probably a scam. There's a lot of scams running right now, and one of them is about Norton LifeLock. But I thought Norton was a reputable company. So I went online, and I found their website, and I got a number for their customer support. And I called it. And they identified themselves as Norton. And I said, this is the uh, Norton LifeLock. And they said, yes. And I explained the situation. And the individual I was talking to said, oh, well, I'm, I'm looking at your account right now. And yes, we you did ask us to renew it. And we did charge you $799.99. I said, I asked you to do it? Oh, yes, you, I've got the email right here. Send me a copy of that, please. Well, they never did. But this was allegedly Norton employees confirming that, in fact, they had charged me $799.99. I asked to talk to a supervisor. Well, after five minutes of being on hold, the call dropped. I called back. It sounded like the same individual. And... uh, he said, well, call this number, and that'll put you straight through to a supervisor at billing. Okay? The number was bogus. I called back a second time. Now, this was now my third call to this number that I found on the Internet for Norton LifeLock. I get an ass-chewing for bothering them, which, of course, in my state of mind, did not go over too well. But they gave me another number. That also turned out to be bogus. I called back for the fourth time. And I got a guy who said, well, this is being recorded. You're harassing us. I said, all I want is to talk to a supervisor. So he gave me a number that got me through to uh, uh, customer service. And I explained the situation. And she said, what is your case number? I said, I don't have a case number. You didn't give me one. Well, then you were talking to a a fake um, office. I said, hey, it came off your website. They identified themselves as your employees. And they agreed that this clearly bogus invoice was real. So... 
if you get anything from Norton, and I called the bank and explained the situation, and they said, well, somebody else had called them with the same issue. And uh, <clears throat> now we're a small um, company. And one of the things that this number I got off the Internet wanted me to do before they would reverse the charge was give them access to all my computers. They said, you may have deleted the pro uh, our program, but there are still uh, things working in the background. And every year, it will automatically renew. I said, that's insane. He said, nope, just give us the information so we can get into your computers, and I'll have a tech person do it, and we'll reverse the... Uh, the charge. I said, no, I'm not letting you in my computers. I didn't fall off the turnip truck yesterday. So then the more I thought about it, I called another, because there's a bunch of Norton uh, LifeLock uh, websites. And they're aware of the fact there's a scam running. And they want you to send uh, any of these bogus invoices to uh, spam at lifelock.com. But they won't talk to you about it. So I finally got somebody to talk to, and I told them the situation. And uh, I said, look, these appear to be your employees confirming that a bogus invoice is accurate. Now that says to me, either Norton knows about it, or there are Norton employees involved in the scam. Either way, you all are at fault. And uh, then as soon uh, I spent from 7 o'clock until, I don't know, about 11, trying to talk to somebody intelligent at Norton. And as soon as I finish with that one, I get something from Hulu. Um... They're sending their appreciation for me renewing with Hulu. Now, I didn't renew with Hulu. But attached to it is an invoice for $380 for one year of Hulu for seven devices. Now, I don't watch Hulu. I haven't watched Hulu. And after this, I'm not going to watch Hulu. And there's nothing on TV worth $380 a year. Let me assure you of that. Now, if you didn't watch what it is that you sign up for, um, and when I did sign up with Hulu, um, because I did at one point in time when we were exploring all the different things we could get on our streaming service. I used a, uh, a debit card. And apparently they've got access to that information and they tried to charge that debit card. So it says to me that there's a whole lot more to these scams than uh, we're allowed to know about. But... You know, Norton, I thought, was a very reputable company. But they fought me in trying to give them the information about the scam, which I found uh, 
Very disconcerting. I mean, if it was me and some of my people might be involved, I'd have been all over that. I'd have had security on the phone in a heartbeat. Uh Uh-uh. They didn't care. So, before you sign up with Norton, I'd suggest you check what's going on. Now, we were talking about some of the world's scariest places in our last show. And in a 1882 poem, The Level Churchyard, British writer Thomas Hardy depicts corpses who feel half-stifled in this jumbled patch of wretched memorial stones. And it's thought that these lines are maybe semi-autobiographical. In the mid-1860s, the this future novelist was an architect <coughs> apprenticed to uh, Arthur Bloomfield, who had been tasked with the exhumation of thousands of corpses buried outside London's St. Pancreas Old Church. And the reason for that was Britain's booming railway industry had necessitated the expansion of the Midland Railway line through part of the church's cemetery. And because tomb robbing was a common practice at the time, Blumfield asked Hardy to oversee the railroad workers and grave diggers who dug up the remains, according to Lester Hillman, academic advisor to the Camden Tour Guides Association and the Islington Archaeology and History Society. It was a dreary and often shocking business. In fact, one night at one a coffin uh, actually cracked open to reveal a single skeleton. But this skeleton had two heads. Now, I know they say two heads is better than one, but I don't think they meant this. Like the other remains, it was put in a pit on the grounds over which San Pancreas Coroner's Court was built and still stands to this day. Uprooted gravestones are used to support the east boundary of the present churchyard. Well, that's what was supposed to happen. At an undetermined date, hundreds of the gravestones are arranged around an ash tree just east of the church, supposedly done by Hardy. And though Hillman doubts Hardy's involvement, the exhumation of the graves never escaped the writer's mind. In fact, 15 years after the experience, Hardy was reunited with Blomfield, whose first words were, uh, Remember how we found the man with two heads at St. Pancras? Then we have stories of the famous hanging graves. From London, Indonesia. You know, hanging from crevices on a cliff face in London, Indonesia, are coffins containing remains of Torasians, an ethnic group whose long history of burial practices is uh, reflected by these hanging coffins. Beginning in the 17th century, the Torasians began suspending their dead from the rock to avoid grave robbing by outside tribes. And I don't know anybody who's going to climb up a cliff to rob a coffin. The higher any given coffin was placed, the greater the status of the corpse. But of course, time is the great leveler, and many of the older coffins have fallen to the ground. More recent burials have been slotted into recesses, actually cut into the rock. Well, at the base of the cliff, you'll see tombs that look like miniature Torasian houses. Burial custom began in the 20th century, according to Tim Hannigan, author of A Brief History of Indonesia. And above these houses, the niches climbed into the cliff to hold the 
creepy, colorfully dressed wooden effigies called Tau Tau. They guard the entrances to caves containing underground tombs. Nobody knows when the Tau Tau were first used. They traditionally reclothed annually and given major repairs every quarter of a century or so. You can escape their eerie eyes by following a guide into the cave where an oil lamp illuminates coffins and bleached bones in the site's oldest necropolis. Caves are almost certainly very ancient places of burial, probably long before the arrival of the ancestors and the current inhabitants. Basically, the whole site reflects a living tradition rather than a fossil. Well, from Indonesia, let's go to France. Paris Lache, the Celebrity Cemeteries, it's called. Late 18th century, Paris is running out of places to bury its dead. Cemeteries were overcrowded and officials were worried about disease, so four new cemeteries were planned outside the city proper. One of them was a 110-acre hillside garden park called the Cemetery du Paris-Gelachais. And though that Nerclopris is now the most famous in the world, nobody wanted to be buried there at first. Hoping to drum up interest, French officials agreed to transplant the bodies of such luminaries as poet Jean de La Fontaine and playwright Malaire from older cemeteries to the new ground. And of course, the novelist uh, Honoré de Balzac helped popularize the grave gambit by name-checking the place in his work. 1835's La Pierre Garret, for instance, the novel's hero, having attended the title character's funeral, looks out from Pierre Lachaise over Paris. The shining world that he had wished to reach, glanced over the, that humming hive, seeming to draw a foretaste of its honey. Well, before long, Barrio at uh, Pereira de Che became a status symbol, reflected by the ornate and often creepy tombs that were built there. Now it's part of Paris proper, but it's home to 70,000 burial plots and a veritable who's who of the afterlife. It even includes such uh, notable people as Jim Morrison, Marshall Proust, Oscar Wilde, not to mention Balzac, who left his shining world and joined Pierre Goriot in 1850. Well, you know, there's all kinds of strange burial practices around the world. Let's talk about the, the Sedlik Ossuary in the Czech Republic. The famous Church of Bones in the Kutnohara suburb of Sedlik, about an hour outside Prague, is a Roman Catholic cathedral containing an underground ossuary filled with more than 40,000 skeletons. Nothing unusual about that, except the bones have been disinterred and artistically arranged to create chalices and candelabras and candle holders and family coats of arms. One particular chandelier composed of nearly every bone in the human body. Known as the Church of Bones, the, this ossuary had its origins in uh, 1278 when the King of Bohemia sent the abbot of Sedlik Cistercian Monastery to the Holy Land. He retrieved a jar of holy soil from Golgotha, the hillside outside Jerusalem where Christ was supposed to have been crucified. When he came back home, he spread the soil in the church cemetery making it a coveted spot for Bohemian burials. 
end of the 15th century, when the cemetery was closed, the skeletons were exhumed and piled in the chapel. In 1870, a local woodcarver set to turning them into macabre objects of art. When he finally finished, he, uh, he signed his work. In bone, of course. But... Well, let's go to Chochilla Cemetery in Peru. It's about 18 miles south of Nazca, small city near the southeast, uh, southern coast of Peru. That's where you find the ancient cemetery of Chochilla, where bodies were mummified, possibly by the Ica Chincha people, from probably 200 A.D. through at least the 9th century. After being clothed in cotton and treated in the resin, the corpses were dried on wooden posts and placed in 12 open mud pit tombs, creating one of the largest cemeteries in the Nazca area. Thanks to the arid desert climate, the mummies were astonishingly well-preserved, some sporting shoulder-length hair. More than 20 still remain. A lot more have been destroyed over the years. After it was discovered in the 1920s, for instance, the area was ravaged by grave robbers who plundered the remains for valuables. It's amazing what folks will be buried with. In 1997, the Peruvian government put a stop to the destruction and tried to restore the site. Now the area is the only Peruvian archaeological site where mummies can be seen in their original tombs. That's according to Ana Maria Cagorno, an expert on Nazca culture and a guide with the Aracare Travel Agency. Along with entire bodies, you'll find isolated trophy heads, some of which were perforated in the back and threaded with rope, probably as a result of a magical ritual. The area's most famous mysteries are reflected in nearby Nazca lines, ancient art drawn on the desert land that uh, can only be seen from the air. So you have to wonder who they planned on uh, looking at it. Along with the cemetery, the lines became an important element in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which may be unsurprising, uh, misrepresented both. Indy is the most confused archaeologist in the world, according to one Peruvian blogger. I was surprised not to see the Statue of Liberty next to the Mexican temples, and certainly that is a possibility. Let's talk about the Tafet, Africa also known as the Burning Place. According to a Roman historian that wrote about Carthage, there was in their city a bronze image of Cronus, extending its hands, palms up, sloping toward the ground, so that each of the children, when placed thereon, rolled down and fell into a sort of gaping pit filled with fire. Now, Carthage was a Phoenician city-state where wealthy parents were suspected of sacrificing their children to deities such as Cronus, the Greek god of time, during the war-torn 4th and 2nd centuries B.C. 1921, French archaeologists unearthed infant burial grounds known as Tuffets. In Hebrew, that was places of burning. Now, there on the outskirts of ancient Carthage in modern-day Tunisia, found more than 20,000 urns packed with cremated infant bones, which gave credence to the idea that Carthaginian children from newborn to four-year-old were sacrificed to diverse divinities. 
including the Phoenician god Baal Haman and his consort Tenet. Parental dedications left on the stones above their children's remains took care to explain the gods had heard my voice and blessed me. People get funny ideas, no question about that. Well, let's go to New Orleans, St. Rock Cemetery, the Chapel of Glass Eyes. 1867, during the yellow fever epidemic that swept New Orleans, the German pastor of Holy Trinity Catholic Church prayed to St. Roch, patron saint of good health, promising that if nobody in his parish died of the dreaded disease, he'd build a chapel in the holy man's honor. True to his word, when his parishioners were spared, the pastor built a Gothic revival chapel in a cemetery in the city's Faubourg Bargini neighborhood. Although today the church is no longer used, the Cemetery's chapel remains a curious and creepy destination. Thanks to a small room filled with prosthetics, thank you notes, glass eyes, dental plates, coins, crutches, and other items brought by people who claim to have been cured by the eccentric saint. According to one saying, Saint Rock will give you what you want, but he always takes something else away. Well, like many New Orleans cemeteries, indeed like the city itself, St. Rock is rumored to be haunted. 1937, according to Gumbo Yaya, a classic book of Crescent City folklore, a ghost came from a tomb and sat on a grave every night for weeks. Barrow Ground was also reportedly home to the specter of a large hound, which is appropriate given that St. Rock's the patron saint of good health and dogs. Well, I spent time wandering around in New Orleans. Whenever my wife would go to one of her meetings... I'd wander around and collect information for a new book. How about the Trunian Cemetery in Indonesia? What's known as the Unburial Ground. Between the eastern shores of Batur Lake and the rim of Mount Batur lies Trunian Village. It's the isolated home to one of the northeast Bali's conservative uh, Bala Aga communities. More than most Balinese who adopted Indian-influenced Hindu beliefs, the Baliaga retained their original prehistoric traditions. That's according to Tim Hannigan, author of A Brief History of Indonesia. As a result, they deviate from mainstream Hinduism and not cremating their dead. And that fact has led to the curious custom even in Trunyan's most famous cemetery. Uh, it's a remote spot accessible only by boat, and that cemetery is home to a camp-like assemblage of 11 bamboo cages, each of which contains a corpse. Umbrellas shield the bodies in varying stages of decay, while relics of their mortal life, uh, such as cigarettes and money and a few possessions, lay scattered on the ground. Well, when a new corpse needs a home, a body that was caged the longest is placed on a stone wall below the nearby uh, Taru Minyan uh, tree. That's a banyan tree that gives off a fragrance said to eliminate the stench of decay. In fact, Haru Minyan means uh, nice-smelling, and it's not incidentally the source of the village's uh, name. Being exposed to flesh-eating insects, wild animals, and the elements may not have seemed condu uh, conducive to eternal rest, but uh, burial here is considered an honor among the Baliaga. In fact, the cemetery is reserved for married people who died of natural causes. That's the sign of a complete life. 
unmarried folks and those who uh, died of diseases, accidents, and the like are buried someplace else. According to one guide, um, everybody from the village uh, hopes to be placed here one day, which may or may not happen. Well, let's go to Bonaventure Cemetery in Savannah, Georgia, the Garden of Good and Evil. Well, according to um, Minerva, the voodoo priestess and John Barrett's best-selling Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, dead time don't change for nobody. She's referring to the liminal window between 11.30 p.m. and 12.30 a.m. She said the half hour before midnight's for doing good and the half hour after midnight's for doing evil. And in Savannah's Bonaventure Cemetery, she actually did both. Black magic never stops, she said. Once you start this... You got to keep it up, or they kill you. Perched on a scenic bluff overlooking Wilmington River, Bonaventure is built on the site of a colonial plantation, the last remnant of which, a vine-covered mound, now lies forgotten among the Victorian obelisks, marble mausoleums, and old-growth oaks that line the dusty avenues. But the cemetery's most famous feature, the eerie bronze bird girl, bird girl, I can't talk, featured on the cover of Brent's book, is no longer there. It was removed to avoid vandals uh, stealing it in the wake of the success of Midnight in uh, Garden of Good and Evil. Bonaventure's permanent residents include veterans of the American Revolution and the Civil War, songwriter Johnny Mercer, poet Conrad Aiken, not to mention more than a few spirits, including that of little Gracie Watson, who died of pneumonia in 1889. Visitors sometimes leave toys around the marble likeness of the girl and even sp- I heard ghosts playing in the grass. The giggling of other children and, most distressing, the wailing of babies has been heard from the cemetery as well. And many of the site's mossy, marble-covered statues are said to move and grimace or grin. According to another figure in Barrett's book, the dead are very much with us in Savannah. I spent several months working at Savannah. It's quite an unusual town, I guess is a way to put it. Well, let's go to Okunoyan, Japan, the mountain of the undead. 21st day of the third moon of the second year of Shawa, that's uh, AD 835. Um, the Japanese founder of Shingon Buddhism, Kobo Daishi, died and passed into Nirvana on Mount Koya in uh, Wakayama Prefecture. According to legend, he's laid to rest in the site's mausoleum. But when monks later opened the tomb, they saw his complexion hadn't changed and his hair had grown. This led to the belief that uh, he'd never died, but continues to meditate, awaiting the coming of the future Buddha. Location of the monk's mausoleum, Okunoyan, is one of the most sacred places in Japan. Not to mention the site of the country's largest cemetery. A misty, mossy place containing remains of more than 200,000 souls. Here you'll find wooden markers memorizing stillborn babies, a monument erected by a pesticide company to honor dead termites. Go figure. And another commemorating puffer fish that have ended up as sushi. Cemetery is also known for statues depicting the Jizo Batsasu, Bodhisattva, a kind of Buddhist saint that are draped with red bibs by families who have lost children. Everything in this 1,200-year-old forest leads to Kobodaishi's mausoleum, 
located past a worship hall, only about more than 10,000 lanterns, that is, and they've said they've been burning since the monk's death. But then that brings back the question again, did he really die? According to inherits of Shingon Buddhism, he didn't. They believe nobody laid to rest and Okunoin is really dead. Like Kobo Daishi. They're just waiting. For what? I'm not sure, but they're waiting. Well, there's certain places that, uh, according to legend, are actually gates to hell. The... Uh, I was listening to something earlier, and a lady died, and she was dead for 27 minutes before her uh, she woke up. And according medically, <coughs> she was in fact dead. But according to her, she spent that 27 minutes in heaven. And she confirmed there is a heaven and there is a hell. Well, let's go to Fengdu in China. Overlooking the northern bank of China's Yangtze River, Ming Mountain is the unearthly home to Fengdu, the ghost city. According to legend, it was founded 2,000 years ago by two Eastern Han Dynasty officials, Yin Changxing and Wang Fingping. They fled the material world and devoted themselves to Taoism, and eventually they became immortal, at least according to the story, and they became immortal after years of patient study. In fact, Wen Yang, their names combined, means king of hell. And during the Tang Dynasty, a temple depicting the horrors of hell was erected on the site, making it their spectral kingdom. Over time, that temple was joined by shrines representing the afterlife, three of which reflect the arduous tests that uh, some Chinese believe the souls have to face after death. Location for the test are Nothing to be Done Bridge, Ghost Torturing Pass, and Tianzi Palace. According to the, to the effect, Fengdu is filled with sculptural depictions of ghosts and demons, many of which are clearly suffering the torments of hell. Most famous is the Ghost King, a giant face carved in a rock hill, the largest sculpture ever carved in rock. Now, you might think this sounds like the Disneyland of death, but uh, consider the city does indeed feature a theme park ride that gives tourists a first-hand glimpse of what it's like to go to Chinese hell. It's amazing what the human mind can come up with. Well, from the Chinese hell, let's go to Hellfire Club in England. Satan's Caves. Beginning in 1748, Sir Francis Dashwood, the 11th Baron of Le Dispensaire, tried to help impoverished workers in West Wycombe, England, by paying them to build a quarter-mile tunnel into the village's chalky hillside. But charity was... Hardly on Dashwood's mind when he asked his laborers to excavate secret chambers along the main tunnel, even including a banquet hall constructed like a compass that contains niches for Italian statues. Well, the tunnel terminated in the complex's so-called inner temple, 
which is reached only by crossing a subterranean stream that Dashwood dubbed Styx. After the river that leads to Hades and Hades in uh, Greek mythology. Located hundreds of feet below St. Lawrence's Church and Mausoleum, also built by Dashwood, Temple served as a meeting place for a group known as the Hellfire Club. This notorious organization counted among its members uh, such 18th century British luminaries as the influential English painter William Hogarth, John Wilkes, a journalist and politician, and the Earl of Sandwich. Club's practice was rigorously, rigorously pagan, according to novelist Horace Walpole. In fact, the members were suspected of practicing Satanism and sex rites in their twice-monthly meetings, during which they supposedly dressed as abbots and called the women that visited them nuns. Although the club's predictably decadent dissolution is too complicated to really go into at this point, suffice it to say the only lasting legacy comes from Aurelio Sandwich, the putative inventor of the comestible that bears his name. Certainly, um, that's an interesting monument to somebody. Let's go to Masaya Volcano in Nicaragua, also known as the Mouth of Hell. When 16th century Spanish conquistadors arrived on the Pacific coast of what's now Nicaragua, they were terrified by the Molten fury of the erupting Masaya volcano. I mean, a few of them had seen a volcano before, least of all an active one, so they're easily influenced by the natives' belief that Messiah was a god. Indeed, indigenous tribes had routinely sacrificed children and virgins to the volcano on the pretext of sending them to fetch water. Aboriginal priests also climbed the crater to consult Kauchutagaku, uh, a divinity deity lived in the lava. According to one conquistador, an old woman with long and spiky hair, sharp fangs, and breasts reaching her waist. Legend sounds downright demonic to the uh, Spaniards. And the volcano itself reflected the prevailing European belief that hell was located in the center of the earth. About 3,555 miles from human civilization to be exact. Now that's basically the distance between New York and London. With, uh, as a result, the conquistadors dubbed the volcano La Boca del Inferno, the mouth of hell. But in the end, they came to the conclusion Messiah was not, in fact, the entrance to the underworld. And why might this be, you ask? In 1615, Friar Juan de Corcamada insisted hell can't contain anything that causes joy, such as fire and light. And since human souls aren't physical... There's no need for hell to have mouths. Torquemada was a strange person. I think you have to admit that. Well, the Spaniards went a lot of interesting places. Met a lot of interesting people and killed most of them. Let's go to Actun, Tunichil, Magna, and Belize, the crystal, the crystal sepulchre. East of San Ignacio, Belize, after about an hour's drive and another hour on foot through the jungle, lies the Tapir Mountain Nature Reserve, home of Octon Tunachil Maknal, the ancient Mayan cave of the Crystal Sepulchre. Discovered in 1989, a three-mile cavern is reputed in the entrance to the Mayan hell, Chibaba, otherwise known as the Place of Fear. 
a kingdom overseen by the underworld lords, a pious master, blood gatherer, and bone scepter, among others. Here, along a subterranean stream, some thirteen people, the youngest just a year old, were ritualistically sacrificed by Mayan high priest at least a thousand years ago. If the pottery, ritual objects, and pre-Columbian tools found at the site are any indication, they were probably killed uh, between uh, 700 A.D. and 900 A.D. Battered bones of these blunt trauma victims are uncannily preserved, no more strikingly than those of the so-called crystal maiden, the mineralized remains of an 18-year-old woman whose laid legs uh, spread at the same spot for centuries. Though scholars aren't entirely sure why these innocents were slaughtered, they may have been sacrificed to the Mayan rain god Chak or to one of the other underworld lords. I mean, let's face it, they don't call them blood gatherer and bone scepter for nothing. And whether it involved bludgeoning, decapitation, or the removal of a still-beating heart from a living victim, human sacrifice was just a way of life and death among the ancient Maya. There's absolutely no indication of... Um, Anything other than the deaths. Well, from the mouths of hell, let's talk about some uh, surprising ghost towns. How about Kennecott Copper Mine in Alaska, known as the Ghostly Glacier? One prospector wrote 1900, I got a mountain of copper up here, describing the eastern edge of the Kennecott Glacier in Alaska's remote Valdez Cordova area. So much of the stuff sticking out of the ground, it looks like a green sheep pasture in Ireland when the sun is shining at its best. Well, certainly his excitement was well-placed. Beginning in the late 1800s, increasing use of electricity, telephones, and automobiles led to a greater demand for copper wiring, meaning that a potential fortune was buried in these hills. 1911, after wealthy industrialist J.P. Morgan helped finance a railroad to transport the copper from the site, Kennecott Copper Corporation, comprised of five mines and a mill town, became fully operational. At the height of the operation, about 600 miners worked long, backbreaking hours, seven days a week for 4 or $5 a shift, ultimately delivering an estimated $200 million worth of copper. But during the Depression, prices plunged, and by the late 1920s, Kennecott's Mountain of Copper is running out. In fact, the last train left the station and uh, Kennecott in November 1938. Until the site was listed in the National Register of Historic Places in 1978, a tangle of tumble-down buildings was a ghost town. According to legend, attempts to revitalize the area were reportedly sabotaged by the spirits of dead miners who could be heard wailing in the tundra among the ice falls and the, along the trestle bridges that they died on while building them, I might add. Well, Chernobyl, Ukraine, the legendary dead zone. According to a warning over Soviet TV, there's been an accident at Chernobyl nuclear power plant. And that warning came two days after the Ukraine site's reactor number four exploded in the early morning hours of April 26, 1986. Caused by flawed design and worker incompetence, the world's worst nuclear disaster released 400 times the radiation of the Hiroshima bomb into the atmosphere. 
led to the deaths of 31 people in less than three months. A lot of other folks died later, often because of Soviet secrecy. Day after the accident, for instance, the nearby 49,000 residents in nearby Pipiat, a community designed to house the plant's workers, were told the smoke they could see in the sky was merely steam discharge. So they went about their business until, of course, they started getting sick. More than 30 years later, Pipiat remains a ghost town, dominated by the ruins of an amusement park that never opened. And though it's one of the most radioactively contaminated areas in the world, the 1,600-square-mile exclusion zone around the disaster sites become an unlikely tourist attraction. You can find a single small hotel in the remains of Pipiat, although its bread's die, uh, dry and old, one TripAdvisor reviewer complained. That area's become an uh, unlikely wildlife sanctuary with boars and foxes moving into a a world that, for humans at least, remains uh, forever frozen in 1986. Well, let's see what else we might have. How about some of the West wildest spots? Go to Bodie, California. California Travel Guide and Handbook in 1913 called it a strange and mysterious country, describing the area around Bodie, California which was a declining mining town where you could, uh, according to the book, stay at the Occidental Hotel for $2 a night, or the United States Hotel for $1. Presumably, the $2 a night had turndown service. Little mints on your pillow. Founded after four prospectors to serve a goal around nearby Mono Lake in 1859, Bodie was nothing but a humble mining camp in 1875 when a mine collapsed revealed a rich vein of ore which attracted San Francisco specul- uh, speculators. Soon, the once secluded spot was filled with more prostitutes, dance halls, and thieves than any other Wild West outpost. There were at least 60 saloons in the place, not a single church, according to one San Francisco paper in 1879. Violence was so common, the locals would ask, uh, have a man for breakfast, meaning was anybody mur- murdered last night? First signs of decline appeared in the early 1880s when the or supplies dwindled, the costs began to rise. In 1862, after years of neglect, Bodie became the cemetery, uh, the country's best-preserved ghost town when the state of California took over management, leading to its designation as a National Historic Landmark and State Historic Park. Though only about 5% of its original structures remain, they're still stocked with bottles and pianos and slot machines and pool tables and stagecoaches and even coffins. And is there gold still in, in their hills? Well, you'll probably never know because metal detectors are forbidden. And let's face it, everything California touches, it screws up. So I don't think Bodie's going to make a comeback anytime soon. Well, on that note, we come into today's show. We'll be back tomorrow. And once again, be talking about the strange and the unusual. Till then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.